listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. What's up, Denver? Today, we got a great episode where we're doing a deal analysis on a brand new build townhome in Arvada. We're gonna run through some scenarios on there and talk about a really cool lending program that we used as well. So my co-host and also agent on the deal is Lauren Valinotti. Lauren, glad, yeah. glad to have you back in the studio. Likewise, super excited. Yeah, so this is uh, you know part of our series we're gonna jump into and talk about uh, deal analyses on new builds. They're also becoming, you know, more and more deals that we buy, especially for house hackers. But Lauren, from like a, a high level overview, like from your perspective, you know, and you you see deals seven days a week. What did you like about this property? Like what stood out to you? This one was exciting. Uh, we got to be able to use some creative financing on it. It was a brand new build townhome. And then there's multiple different plays of how we can make this property work. And we'll dive a little bit deeper into that later. Yeah. And so our guest and also investors property is Anthony Musco. So we got connected, I think about a year ago, we were trying to remember before that, uh, but his background is he's, he's a software engineer, uh, works in robotics, and is just a wizard at, at numbers and spreadsheets, which you'll get to see a sneak peek at the end of a really cool spreadsheet that he built. But he's very he's numbers oriented and just wanted to figure out the best way to start investing in real estate. He moved here from New York City, and obviously prices are a little bit more different out here. And it's a different market. So we came up with a strategy, analyzed a bunch of properties, and then got this great new build. So Anthony, glad to have you on the show, man. Hey. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Of course. So I know this was from our, the first couple of conversations we had as we were talking, you know, deals and numbers and strategies. New builds was not on the radar no, when we started talking. <laughs> at what point in your like journey of, uh, you know, just uh, setting goals and analyzing properties when you're like, oh, new builds, they may make sense. Like when did that pop for you? Yeah, it was definitely a surprise to me. Um, I definitely didn't start out looking, you know, for, you know, new builds and, you know, luxury townhomes. Um, I think it was definitely just a product of the the uh, the current market that we're in. Uh, yeah. You know, I started off looking at, uh, you know, small multifamily uh, duplexes, triplexes. I must have run the numbers on maybe a dozen different properties of, of that type. Um, so I think you started doing that like that was like summer last year. We started yeah, I was around crunch numbers you know, like August, I think. OK. Um, and I've just been keeping my eye on the market for a long time. I was targeting, you know, an acquisition around um, the new year. So January, February. Which that's is, when your lease ran out. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, like I said, I ran the numbers on maybe a dozen properties. And, uh, you know, the the original plan was to, you know, do something um, maybe more modest, uh, maybe a distressed property, you know, get something with, with uh, a bit of a discount, uh, you know, fix it up, rent it out, that kind of thing. Um two big wrenches in that plan. One, we're in like a historic seller's market. Um, you don't really find those deals very easily unless yeah. you're devoting a ton of time to it. Um, and the second is, is that even, you know, finding those deals, uh, they're they're pretty expensive to begin with. And, and they also require a lot of, you know, uh, work just to get it up to, um, you know, rental quality. So I figure, you know, if, if I'm going to buy something, I might as well buy something where all of the work has already been done. You know, I get to finance the cost of all of those updates, so to speak, where a new build would just be brand new um, and uh, and see where we go with there. It's more desirable from a tenant perspective. And, you know, I don't really have much to worry about um, as far as long term maintenance. And since a, a big part of like, you know, as you're analyzing the market, getting to fit into your strategy, I mean, you know, it became more and more clear that, hey, this is a, a great long term leverage play, you know, leverage play. Yeah. And I mean, whether you buy a fixer upper you know, that everyone's trying to find out there or a new build. The cash flow numbers aren't that much difference, but the leverage is where you're getting this, you know, a lot of times a, a significant uh, return on there. Correct. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you said it before that the goal is always the next deal, right? You know, like, why would I spend a dollar, you know, fixing up a property that I acquired where I could use that dollar to, to acquire a new one as long as, you know, cash flow is equal. Right. So, uh, um, so, you know, it's kind of moved away from, you know, buying something where you put, you know, maybe 10, 15 K into it to get it up to speed rather than just buy something where it was either just recently renovated or it's a new build and you get to finance all that, um, you know, all of the things being equal. 
Great. All right. So uh, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, we're going to spice the way, spice things up on the way we're doing the deal analyses. So we're going to actually plug in the numbers live to a spreadsheet. So we're going to talk uh, talk about them here in the podcast. If you're on uh, YouTube or want to watch YouTube, go here. You'll see us in real time. Uh, fill it out. And what we're going to do is we're just going to start plugging the numbers and use numbers kind of tell the story about how you found the property, how you acquired it, um, and all that stuff. So starting off, this was a, it's a new build townhome, not far from Old Town Arvada, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that was part of like, from location standpoint, Lauren, I mean, what's attractive about that from just the overall, you know, big picture map of Denver Metro? What's so attractive about Old Town? It's still pretty central to town, which is great. The light light rail runs all the way through it. So you can literally from the airport, take the light light rail all the way there. Uh, the downtown has a lot of charm. There's maybe like a four block radius of local restaurants and bars, um, you know, places that even people that live in, you know, closer to the city um, are attracted to these bars out in that area. So, um, it's a walkable, you know, location also. And then we'll kind of touch on too. It is in a opportunity zone as yes, well. That was a big, big component to this deal because that will, I think, feed in the financing here. So Correct. put the, uh, you know, just Arvada up here. I mean, it's a one unit primary residence now down payment. Um, talk more about the opportunity zone. He wants to take that hot potato. And what that led to? Well, the opportunity zone necessarily for this one, um, how it benefited Anthony was that we were able to use the Bank of America grant program. And it's a two-step grant program. It's the $10,000 grant, which is what you can use towards your down payment. And then it's $7,500 uh, that you can use towards your closing cost. Um, how you can get approved for this is that you have to make less than one one fifty a year, and you have to have a pretty good credit score. Um, location is another factor here for the secondary grants, and it's kind of dictated based upon what your income is. So, however much money you make is going to dictate to where the property will qualify for that one. And so, this property was in an area. Um, that allowed Anthony to be able to use both of those grant programs for a total of $17,500 of uh, money he'll never have to to, to pay back, um, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Help, I mean, helps with, uh, helps with the numbers and keeps more right. cash in the pocket. And because a lot of times, I just want to clarify, you know, we talk about opportunity right. zones a lot of times from like the investor standpoint, right. they're, you know, they're 1031 mm -hmm. tax-like advantages. Mm -hmm. But that's not something that Anthony is taking advantage of. Right. It was just that, hey, Bank of America, through whatever government program it is, they got funding and they could direct it into this areas and we can kind of ride those waves, those areas, and that works out very well. So for down payment, what should we put down here? This is where we're gonna have to kind of like finagle the spreadsheet yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question. So um so the the loan itself was 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 five percent down. Okay. Um, but that uh doesn't include the the ten thousand dollar down payment grant. Um, or the uh, the seventy five hundred dollar uh, closing cross credit. Um, so just five percent off the yep. the price. And then mm -hmm. what about mortgage insurance? Was that monthly paid, prepaid? What'd you do? Oh, so there was no uh, PMI required for this loan, which was another uh, uh, killer part of the financing. Yeah, that's a big fat cherry on top. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And wait until you see the rate along um, with no property mortgage insurance. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to select upfront single paid on the spreadsheet. And then we'll wash it out in a minute as we get a little farther down here. Uh, purchase price, kind of what was the the ballpark there? Uh, five hundred and fifty-nine thousand. Five fifty-nine. And then we have a feel for acquisition cost, which is typically you know appraisal, inspection, all those little costs there, and about fifteen forty for loan costs. What would you say your acquisition costs were? So the acquisition cost total on paper, not including the closing cost credit or the or the grant, um, was about thirteen thousand. And that and that and loan cost in there about fourteen fifty altogether. Is that close, or do we need to wash that out? Um, yeah, that that's close okay. enough uh, for the spreadsheet. Um, keep in mind this also includes um, you know one one of the wrinkles in the deal was due to COVID. Um, that uh, the the builder wasn't able to uh, um, to finish the property by the closing date or the target closing date, so I had to keep extending the rate lock, which was a bit of a pain. But that's 
pretty much why those acquisition costs were higher than, you know. Well, it was a pain, but it cost you money. Like if you say, hey, we got this rate locked in until uh, December 31st. Yeah. And the builders can't deliver for another two weeks, push it back to January 15th. The lender says, hey, that's going to cost you another eighth of a point, quarter of a point. I mean, that cost you a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars. Like yeah, pain there. Yeah, that's that's the pain there. But um, and that's uh, one of the risks with new builds is they don't always get built on time <laughs> especially during a global pandemic <laughs> yeah um and i'm looking here going down we've got the b27 and it shows the upfront mortgage insurance about 8500 so in the seller credits i'm just going to wash out and put in 8500 there to wash that out mm-hmm. but then also from bank of america you got you got basically 17500 total mm-hmm. yep on this one, though, we unfortunately, we cannot put that into the seller credit um, because the way that Joe has yep. it written, it's a cap normally of 3%. So I would just put that 8500 in there. And then on the initial repair cost, let's do a negative 17500 And then he did have to uh, include a $2,000 repair cost to buy the washer dryer. So you can just do negative 17000 plus... Two thousand. Yeah. So fifteen five. Sure. Right. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So that number looks about right of that initial cash investment. Yep. Awesome. And, uh, just south of seven uh, twenty-seven thousand dollars. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So about. I mean, that means like you know, all in between earnest money and the final you know wire you bring to the closing table, and for just under twenty-seven thousand dollars on a what five hundred fifty-nine thousand dollar place. Mm-hmm. Um which is great. So, great leverage. Interest rate, we got it pre-populated at 4.5%. I know it wasn't that high. It was uh, 2.75%, 30-year fixed. This is what makes nomading and house hacking. Not that high. So great, <laughs> 2.75%. There we go. So 2.75 at 30 years. Um, now, how do you want to analyze? I think we're going to analyze this as a as once you move out, right? As a first pass through. We kind of talked about a few scenarios we're going to play with on here. Because what we always like to do is say, hey, cool, here's... We always like to analyze it first as a future rental property. Because mm-hmm. this is not your dream home. It's not your ever home. It's, hey, it's a future rental property that you're buying here. Um, when you move out, what the numbers look like? So we like to, that perspective. And we also like to be on the more conservative spectrum. And then come back and kind of play some of the numbers as well. So in a year or two when you move out... Actually, when do you think you'll move out? Uh, so we're targeting uh, a year, a year from okay. now. Um, but, you know, uh, depending on how... So so this actually, uh, I guess, um, it's a good point to um, uh, to touch on the uh, the flexibility of the property. Um, and that was a, another driving or motivating factor for acquiring the new build. So it's, uh, it's a three-bedroom, three-and-a-half bath. Um, each bedroom has its own private bath. Um, and obviously, it's a brand-new build, um, you know, 2020 construction. It's got very modern finishes. It's it's a it's a very functional property. Um, so uh, one of the other uh, nice things about it was that it works in so many different ways. It can work as a uh, you know pure Airbnb, and that also um, you know goes back to the the city of Arvada is allowing right. uh, non owner occupant Airbnbs. Um, it can also work as a rent by the room because each room has its own private bathroom, um, and the common areas are are pretty nice. Um, and then it also works as a as a single tenant, you know, just you know, single uh, one tenant uh, annual lease. Um, so, uh, so I bought it uh, with that flexibility in mind, oh, um, which is great optionality. Yes, um, flexibility is always is always great. Um, I haven't really decided where we're going to you know um, stick with the the plan right now is to uh, um, Airbnb out one of the two bedrooms um, while we're living there for a year. Okay, um, so we're, we're targeting one year, so January February of uh, 2022. Um, is when we will be, you know, looking for our next deal and, and planning to move out onto uh, our next ha- house hack. Um, and then once that happens, uh, we're probably going to turn the entire thing into an Airbnb um, and see how long um, we're going to, uh, you know, uh, be okay with that level of management. Um, because the way I'm thinking about it is the Airbnb uh, rent by room and then single tenant um, are uh, decreasing in both management um, requirements and also income potential. So Airbnb, you know, heavy management, if I'm, you know, checking every week, making sure tenants are scheduling uh, or guests are scheduling, um, but the highest income potential, rent by the room, slightly less income potential, slightly yep. less management, and then finally, you know, the standard landlord model. And you did a great job explaining because it's, it's, it's a balance. Hey, we can maximize the revenue, 
but it's going to take more time and just comes down, hey, how much time and mental bandwidth do you want to put into there? Exactly. Um, and, you know, usually every year it gets, I want to put a little less and less time into there. Right, yeah. Um, the other thing, too, uh, oh, we should talk about this. Um, uh, we started doing some work with a really good uh, Airbnb property management company. Um, oh, yeah. We'll get you hooked up to them. I will send you an email. Mm-hmm. To, they, they've been a great resource for the last couple of weeks. We're doing some more details in the future, but they'd be great people like pick their brain on. And also some numbers they showed us, like their management fees, you know, makes it can make sense to hire them as a manager as well and still get some better cash flow. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'd love uh, to, to get in touch with them and see what they have to say. Um, So looking at here from when you move out in a year time frame, doing a conservative single tenant scenario, what do you think the rent will be? Uh, I have it at 2,700 a month. Lauren, any comments on there? It'll be interesting, you know, it'll be interesting to see where it lands. It's a high desirable area. It's walkable, you know, to old, old town um, with the fact of where inventory is so low. Um, people are really not able to get into their own house. So they're kind of getting forced into renting. So and there is a theory that rents kind of might start ticking up a little bit. Um, but I think this is on the, the lower end side. All right. Uh, vacancy. You guys go if you're on at 5%, be conservative. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Rent increase will say 3%. Annual appreciation will say 3%. Taxes will just leave at 25%. Um, property management, do you plan on self-managing or hiring a PM? I plan on self-managing. Um, and uh, again, this goes back to you know the level of... Uh, you know, time invested versus versus income. Uh, if it gets to the point where, you know, it's just, it's becoming too much of a hassle and I'm, you know, I'd rather just hire a property manager than I'll go for that. But in the beginning, um, this is what I'm gonna expect to do. Great. And so here's something I always kind of debate on for, you know, monthly reserves, because this is a brand new build. You probably have a, give a builder's warranty for one year. Yes. And so, you know, hopefully the first five, seven years, you should have, knocking on wood here, you know, really no major maintenance items, no CapEx items. So I debate sometimes around eight percent for long-term averages. I'm like, hey, it's a brand new property. We're not lower the first couple of years. What do you? How did you analyze it? Did you run lower or? I ran super low, uh, mostly because, um, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about my investment horizon or, or, or yep. you know, what what I'm expecting to do. I have a seven-year investment horizon, so you know, in seven years, I'm going to either um, sell or cash out refi, um, and uh, and then just make a decision there. Um, but for those seven years, I don't expect any huge uh, maintenance expenses. I mean, obviously anything could happen, uh, but I'm maintaining a pretty decent um, cash reserve for PITI. So my, my perspective is, you know, as far, you know, don't don't put too much into reserves. Uh, and then if, you know, anything happens, just go into my um, my cash reserves. Or I should yeah. say, don't use monthly reserves. Use use whatever I have as my cash reserves. Okay. So run this at 5% of rents or would you? Or... I, I put it at like 1%. Okay. We'll put that one percent, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned kind of like the 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 plan because I want to plug in the mo- the spreadsheet model you built later because you built a really cool model for the seven year time horizon. Yeah, so we'll go into a lot more details in that in the next I don't know, ten minutes or whatever as we wrap this up. Um, HOA fees. What uh, are they? One hundred ninety. And what's that include? So that includes uh, water sewer, um, landscaping, uh, trash removal, and. Like full yeah. landscaping and snow, yeah. There's so water, sewer, landscaping, snow, and trash, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's, uh, it, it's a townhouse, um, so there's really no, like, I own no grass. <laughs> um, all, it's all just common. Uh, we have a common park right in front of the community. And I want to make a note on here for the rents. What's the uh, so twenty seven is low end. What do you think like the the high end is, Lauren or Anthony? For a single tenant? Yeah, for this in the future in a year, because I know if rents go up, like. What's the, the range of, hey, conservative to a little more, if everything goes right? I think you could get like 3,000 a month. Okay. So I'm just gonna make notes in here for future reference mm-hmm. and then we can come back in a year and- Yeah, as a baseline, I was just using, you know, pretty easy numbers. Yeah. 2,700 for a single tenant, 3,000 for rent by the room would be like a thousand bucks a month per room, which I thought okay. was reasonable. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and I had 3,600 for, uh, for an Airbnb okay. on average. Um. Taxes. Now, this is always a can be a slightly tricky year one or first year in year one of new built yeah. townhomes. Yeah, my taxes are super low because it's assessed as vacant <laughs> land right now. Uh, I have it as uh, thirty nine hundred annually. Because um, right now it's probably what nine hundred bucks 
thousand bucks something like that to be honest i don't know what the actual um tax obligation is because it's just you know yeah it's uh kind of irrelevant um should be assessed sometime this summer and then i'll have my tax bill um so this is really the the probably the biggest uncertainty i have right now is what the tax bill is going to be but you said 3900 yeah and i think that works out to like 325 a month yeah i mean from a lot of you know price point new builds location that's within the range we Mm -hmm. often see and calculate ourselves Mm -hmm. Uh, insurance. What was your insurance like? Your your property insurance. Um, it's uh, so it was a thousand sixty, and then I was able to bundle it with my auto insurance. Um, so it dropped below uh a thousand. So I think it's like five nine sixty right now. Cool. And I would definitely just recommend a few another house hackers when you move out and make sure you update your insurance policies. Because yes. mm-hmm. a lot of times when you go from you know owner occupied to landlord policy, your rates actually drop because mm. they're no longer insuring your personal property. Uh, utilities, probably zeros, I'd imagine, right? So water and sewer zero, trash is zero. Uh, um, electric um, will be tenant paid, right? Uh, yes, at least if you're doing the single Unless, tenant, yeah, right. Which is what makes modeling this yeah. as three different uh, scenarios a bit a bit more tricky. But um, yeah, so zero, yeah, so no no utilities or expenses. And beyond that, I mean, there's probably another operating cost, right? Um, yeah, no, nothing that I have. Uh, management that's modeled separately. Um, and then I usually have like 25 bucks a month for, for minor repairs, but, um, okay. Yeah. So what's that? 250 a year. Yeah. So why do you do that versus keeping this lower? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in, in my perspective, like, you know, minor repairs would just be, you know, like replacing light bulbs and and, and you just general wear and tear, whereas, you know, maintenance reserves are, I got to replace the water heater, you know, okay. like that kind of capital expense. Um, I guess it's just, you know, Apple's, you know. Yeah. No, it's all just the way you classify it. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's just the way I like to think about it. Um, you know, cash flow versus capital expenditures. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right, so we're going to switch over from the inputs tab to the cash flow tab here. Zoom in some. So this restates everything. So we have a total expected annual rental income of about just under 31000 after we subtract out the 5% vacancy. All your annual expenses, except for you know not including mortgage, is going to be about 7700 a year which gives you an NOI of 23,000 a year, less your mortgage payments of 26,000 a year, which comes up with an annual cash flow of negative $3,000. So you can't return it now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but talk to us about this, because you know, this is something we talked a lot about just you know, in terms of your, and I think it might be a good time to talk about you know, your long-term goals with real estate investing, and how you just came up, hey, cool, this is the most efficient use of capital, and I'm fine with this type of number. Kind of walk us through your reaction, your thought process to why you're fine with negative 250 month in cash flow. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, obviously I would love to have ca- positive cash flow on this, um, but my perspective was, um, hey, this is the most conservative scenario, right? So this is a single tenant. I, uh, you know, I'm planning on running it as an Airbnb, so the cash flow sh- should be slightly positive in reality. Um, but under a conservative assumption, this you know is my worst case, which I'm I'm totally happy with because um, this is predominantly a leverage play. Yeah. So um, you know, as you see at the top, I was able to buy you know a five hundred sixty thousand dollar property for under thirty thousand dollars, you know, cash up front, um, and uh, you know I, I I just think it's a great use of leverage and a great opportunity um, because my return isn't really going to be in the cash flow; it's going to be in the uh, it's going to be in the, the debt pay down and and the appreciation. And let's talk about these numbers because when you look at this, I mean, this is where you can say, hey, this this is a potentially triple digit return on your money the first year of owning it. Um, because appreciation, a 62% return. Again, it doesn't mean you made 62% appreciation, but saying, hey, the property appreciated 16,000 change divided over your down payment of 26 and change gives you a 62% return. Your debt pay down. Again, same thing, how much debt are you and as we project out, this is your future tenants, you know, paying down your debt. Um, they're paying down 42% because, hey, great, you're getting 11000 a year in debt pay down over a $26,000 down payment. And then tax benefits and really debt pay down, tax benefits, you know, that comes more into play um, when you move out typically. But de- depreciation tax benefits, 16% a year. Cash flow, negative 11% a year. But altogether, it's a great overall return. Now, 
I know you, you know, you're, you're very savvy with your numbers and your planning, Anthony. How are you taking the, you know, cause this is a, a calculated risk reward ratio. Mm-hmm. It's a leverage play and we're going to make, you're making money just on the, on the financing side here. What are you doing to offset the risk of a negative cash flowing asset in a, in a worst case conservative method? Uh, so I'm just maintaining a, uh, a pretty decent uh, cash reserves. Um, so I'm maintaining eight months uh, PITI, um, you know, so if we ever get into that situation where it's, uh, you know, negatively cash flowing and, um, you know, I will have time to be able to make a decision. So that's that's my um, my buffer. Um, but as far as the negative cash flow, um, you know, my perspective is, you know, if it's negatively cash flowing like this for seven years, um, you know, that's three thousand by, by, you know, seven years, that's uh, twenty one thousand dollars. I mean, I only put down, you know, $26,000. So my total investment would be $40,000, which is what I would have put down on another property anyway. So um, so when I think about it that way, I don't really um, consider it, you know, uh, that um, terrible. My perspective is just trying to keep the cash flow um, neutral or positive. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then just let the asset perform and, you know, get the debt pay down, the appreciation benefits. So I like how, how you thought about that over like, you know, the native cash flow over that time horizon. Now for, let's uh, go back. I'm going back to the uh, initial tab and let's add in another 21,000 in down payment. So I'm gonna take away the initial repair cost of 15, negative 15.5. Um, and I'll just take, get rid of the seller credits or bump that down a little bit. So that should get us close to, close enough for, you know, hey, putting down another $21,000. Right. Get your total initial investment close to $50,000. So now you're putting down, you know, $50,000. And actually, I guess I should probably have done the yeah, that would payment. Have been, yeah, like, that would have been better, better, huh? All right. Because you want to get the cash flow to yep, come up. That's what I was zero. playing with. So so I get for, so what's your <laughs> guess, 8%? Uh, so 5% was like 24. So another 10 would be, um, yeah, two and a half, so eight. Yeah. All right. So that gets the down payment up five uh, percent. I'm curious. I don't. Yep. I, I, I doubt it's going to actually affect the uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah. the cash flow that much. You're gonna take any bets? <laughs> I, I say I say it drops the uh, or raises the negative cash flow by 150 bucks. So you'll you'll 150 bucks a month. You'll be less than 150 a month, or is that annual? Oh yeah, you're right, right. So 150 bucks a month. Um, so that would be times 12 would be like uh, 1500. So Laura, I'm going to set you up for failure with this question. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you this now. And you have to follow up mm-hmm. with this right. wizard. The math. Well, yeah. Math what, what's your what's your bet on this? Well, logically, what he just said, it makes sense. So, <laughs> just so go go suit. play the prices right. And go one dollar over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I say I say it's negative thirteen hundred annually. Okay, I think you're going to be really close. Um, we'll see. <laughs> but I think it's going to be negative. That's the whole point. I want to run the stairs. Yeah. So you're going to do here? Ah, no. Ooh. It's 21. You won, Lauren. Yes. Going that dollar over. Um, so negative cash flow is $2,100 a year, as opposed to, I think we're at 3000 a year. Um, so we saw a $900 difference in swings. Let's say $100 a month. Do you care about $100 a month in the grand scheme of things? No, not really. Do you, Lauren? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so looking at the return quadrant, great. $100 more in cash flow. Cash flow is a negative five percent return, but now your overall return is sixty nine percent, and it's what you've mentioned a few times. It's because you now have less leverage since you put more down, and that totally changes the return. So while you're making a few more dollars in return, you're actually getting a less a, a lower return on your capital investment. Correct. Yeah. Which is a really great way to look at this and exercise, like the way you, I like how you project out seven years. Um, but say, hey, cool, you can put more down to make a cash flow, but is that worth it? And that comes down to personal risk tolerance. I'm fine with slightly negative cash flow in these high leverage situations because that's where you, you that's where you're winning. Yeah. As long as you recognize it for what it is. Um, yes. You know, I, I'm in a position in my, you know, investment journey where, um, you know, I'm comfortable assuming, you know, a bit more risk. Um, you know, I don't have, you know, a whole lot of debt and, you know, in a worst case scenario, I'll, I'll you know, it's fine. Um, but, you know, the ultimate goal is to get passive passive yeah. cash flow. So my perspective is, you know, um, maintain this high leverage position for seven years um, and then roll that into a, a more traditional cash flowing property like a like a smaller multifamily or or whatever it may be in seven years. So let's, let's pause here and switch over to your spreadsheet because you've got some cool modeling on there, which I think can 
you know, uh, lead up to like your, your long-term goals. The last thing I'll say about the high leverage is that you're doing it right. And we always recommend is you're liquid. Mm-hmm. You, you have cash mm-hmm. reserves in the bank, which is that helps mitigate the risk on there. So before we switch to the spreadsheet, kind of as we wrap up this just deal analysis and we kind of get to have some more geeking out, Lauren, what else do we need to talk about in terms of putting the deal together, things you liked? Yeah. Uh, one thing to kind of touch on that we haven't talked about is on a brand new builds, there's appreciation right off the bat. You know, you were the first phase of this development. And as second phase is already, you know, going on to the market, the same exact layout is already going for, I think, like 25000 more up to like thirty, And really with the way that... Uh, already? Already. Because so, you closed in January, right? January. January 21st, yeah. <clears throat> wow. Right. So there's a really good chance that this same model might actually go for 600000 really. Um, and so that's also an interesting play for a newer build that some of our investors do. They'll go in day number one. They're the very first lot. And they, by the end of the completion of that uh, development, they're, you know, they're already appreciated so much just for the the timing there. You just have to be okay with living in uh, active construction cipher. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But hopefully you're getting compensated for it. I mean, that's, that's yep. the, yeah, that's the plus, you know? Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that I know we talked about, you know, this is we're trying trying to start educating people on the difference between new builds and resale inventory, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And I see a note in here about the non-refundable ten thousand dollar builder's deposit, but you're able to negotiate a two week refundable period, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Talk about talk about the setup and what you guys negotiated there. Yeah. Um, again, every builder's different. When you start working with the larger nationwide builders. The flexibility on the, the negotiations is a little bit more more difficult. Luckily, this is a local builder. Uh, it's a family-run uh, shop as well, so they have a little bit more heart on the the back end. Was able to educate them about this grant program and um, just help them understand like their hesitation because we still needed to get him pre-approved because it was really that sort of financing that was going to make this deal make sense for him or not. And so we were able to kind of work them down to a lower uh, deposit and allow us this grace period of two weeks to be able to get pushed through. Uh, with Bank of America to get that that pre-approval, so we all felt good about it, yeah. which was great. That's smart. Yeah. yeah, and and just for for the context, you know, traditionally when you go under contract, um, you have to put down your earnest money, but um, for the most part, that's refundable for various stages up until closing. Um, but this required earnest money plus the builder's deposit, which is non-refundable. So um, because I didn't have that uh, that financing locked in, um, that was you know risk on the table for me because I'm not oh, yeah. able to. You know, um, I wouldn't be able to pull that out and move into another investment. Great. All right. So we're going to switch gears here. We're going to have some fun going to Anthony's uh, more. I mean, it's just a very robust model. I remember we were talking and you sent a deal now. So I was like, whoa, what is this thing? <laughs> um, it, it, is, uh, it is very impressive. So I'm going to flip over here, go to full screen. I'm going to be Vanna White for you. Where, yeah, sure. where should we start? Um, um, so this summary page is, is kind of just a very high level. It, um, it has some, um, you know, maybe some esoteric metrics that people are not, I uh, may not be too familiar with. Um, but, uh, I, I find it very useful. So, um, so here you three, you see three, three lines. Um, one is the, uh, the cash on cash, which is the green line. Um, and you can note that it, you know, in year one and, and the X axis is years. Um, right. So I have a, uh, a seven year horizon. So in seven year seven, um, you know, I either sell or, or refinance here. I'm modeling a sale. Um, so the green line, uh, you know, you try and keep as close to, you know, positive as possible. Um, you know, that's what we're all here for. Um, but what's interesting is the, uh, the blue and the yellow line. So I want to interrupt you here. So this is plotted over a seven year hold. So the green line starts negative. Mm. Uh, year, you know, year four ish, it's right around year four to five. It's break even goes slightly positive. Why is it dip back down in year six to negative cash? Well, I can't, I can't think of why that's doing that. Right. So I'm actually modeling, um, how long I'm expecting to manage it, uh, myself. 
So in, I, I'm planning, you know, five years. Um, by that time, hopefully I'll have many properties and I just don't want to manage this directly. Okay. So that's the property management fee in there that's dropping it. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Uh, back to the other lines. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the blue line is the internal rate of return, um, which is, uh, you know, when you go back to your spreadsheet and you have like the 66% return in the first year, um, it basically allows you to equate it to a more traditional investment like, you know, buying stock. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a bit different because it's not liquid. You know, a lot of your return is tied up in equity from appreciation debt pay down. But ultimately, you're, you're earning money. It's just tied up in the asset. So uh, so what the eternal rate of return does, it says, all right, well, let's say in year four, that's about 30%. That means that you've earned 30% on your money every year for four years, which is, you know, if you compare that to the S&P, um, this year, I think it was a 16% return. So, you know, it's a pretty great performing asset. And that's a direct result of the leverage in this asset. What's your discount rate you're using for this? Um, so this is uh, this is just the asset by itself. Okay. So I'm I'm computing the uh, discounted uh, the cash flows over time. Okay. Yeah. So there's no discount rate. It's just what the actual return is. Great. And, and then yeah, and then the yellow line is the return on equity. So in the beginning, it's incredibly high because I don't have a lot of equity. But as your equity grows, you can always ask yourself a question in each year. You know, should I sell? Should I pull out this equity and put it into another asset? Um, and the way the answer to that question is return on equity, because, you know, um, if it's, you know, uh, if it drops below 10%, then that means if you can earn more than 10%, um, you know, it's in your interest to pull that equity out and put it into another better performing asset. Um, and that's what I use to kind of tune in my investment horizon, you know, assuming all of the things equal and assuming my assumptions are correct. Um, you know, if I get to a point where my equity is earning only 10%, then I can, you know, take that money and, you know, roll it over into a better performing investment. I gotta say, man, you just did an impressive job explaining IRR and return on equity, which are not uh, easy concepts to explain in three sentences. I've had That's practice. impressive, man. I explained it to my fiance probably about three times. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so, and I'm sure you've played around with this and this is kind of what your your current plan is, right? So let's talk about some of the assumptions you plugged in because a lot of us got the same baseline numbers that we plugged in the previous spreadsheet. Purchase price, down yep. payment, I mean, all, Close enough for just what we're talking about here. But what did you use for like appreciation, uh, your rates and all this so we can see how these numbers play out? Sure. So um, so just as a high level, any of the, you know, blue boxed text um, is stuff that are that are the assumption. Everything else is computed. OK, so, um, so purchase price. Um, I made this model to be flexible enough to run deal analysis and other properties. But for the most part, you know, purchase price, market value, acquisition and ARV is all the same. Um, my credits there that I got from the the financing deal. And then if you scroll down to the bottom um, a little bit more, there's these are my assumptions. Uh, and there's quite a bit that, you know, we don't need to go into. Um, but basically, if you highlight uh, annual inflation, uh, inflation rate. So this is what I'm assuming inflation is going to be um, year over year, um, which is what the, the Fed is targeting uh, two and a quarter. Um, so that I'm also inflating my expenses as I'm also, you know, increasing rents. Yeah. Um, and then I also have uh, I'm modeling or making assumption for inf appreciation above inflation and rent growth above inflation. So at the end of the day, um, my uh, if you go the the bottom two or uh, annual appreciation rate and annual rent growth rate at the bottom uh, is three percent and three percent. So fairly fairly uh, conservative there. Yeah. So. Um... I'm going to copy this. I'm going to, I'm going to play around with your spreadsheet if you don't mind. Yeah, so, absolutely. Lauren, you were saying already, oops, uh, let's see, here we go. So you were saying that new models are already going for $25,000 appreciation. So best guess for Chris Paul, if that's already gone like that in, I don't know, one quarter, what do you expect might be one year from now for appreciation? Um, I, I think like that, like 600,000, like okay. six, 610. So if it was six ten, that'd be fifty thousand dollars in that's almost appreciation, yeah, which is crazy. So was that? Uh, oops, where is that spreadsheet? Gotta find the spreadsheet. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, if you put in uh, seven point seven five, would be ten percent. That's gonna. So we're gonna leave rent growth above because I, you know, I'm gonna bet that you'll see more appreciation growth, and more rent growth in next year. Uh, it's my crystal ball. So on the model up here. Um, your IRR is now what? That's 60 some percent, yeah. 70 percent. 
Um, another another note. Um, I also uh, a, a difference between your model and my model. Yeah. Uh, I always assume the uh, the uh, the cash reserves that you have are part of your cash investment, right? Because yep. that's money that you know is is required to hold the property. So so I'm including that. Um, whereas so that that's why your your percentage is 110. percent Mine is slightly lower because my basis is a little higher. Little little side note, but uh. Yeah, just about uh, 65 Did you build the model to uh, calculate returns on your money? On the 1% in the bank? Or no, the no. stock market 7%? No, that, that'll be in the next release. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, that obviously changes your returns for IRR, changes your return equity. But if you get higher appreciation like this, mm. does that change your holding period or your strategy? If you do get, say, 10% appreciation, I doubt that's sustainable for a couple of years, but let's just say... You know, let's just say that is like that for the next couple of years. What does that do to your strategy? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I'm a numbers guy. So um, you know, I'm looking at that return on equity. If my if my return on equity is sufficient, and in here with this assumption, um, by year seven, it looks like it's around eighteen percent um, or close twenty percent. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm probably going to hold it, and uh, unless I can get my, a better return somewhere else. Um, yeah. So uh, I mean, ultimately, the long term play is to be able to get a uh, income producing property. Um, that is generating cash flow. Um, and it, with these assumptions, you know, you're not assuming that the rent is growing. So the, yeah. the green line is still pretty flat. So it's still not cash flowing, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great place to hold my money for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I kind of got a little sidetrack there. So I'm going to put this back to the yep. 0. 0.75. So that way you're at a, at a 3%. Oh, I have to do 0. 0.75%. Oh, there we go. I unbroke it. Yeah. Um, all right. One of the things we're going to talk about in the spreadsheet. Um, I because this is like one tab of about thirty. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually scroll over to the returns tab. Um, it shouldn't have a lock on it. So I actually really like this plot. Um, because it kind of is the you know gives you the high level perspective of you know um where your potential returns are coming from. Um. So here we have every year uh the total return for uh, appreciation, which is the blue debt pay down, which is purple tax savings, which is red, and uh, green is the operational cash flow. Um, so another another note is that, you know, I'm not too worried about the operational cash flow because um, obviously this is, you know, more uh, working with your accountant, um, but the, 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 the tax savings uh, can kind of offset that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not as big of a deal, but the thing that jumps out at you the most is, hey, you know, it's great to have the, the green part be positive, but overwhelmingly the largest contribution to your, um, your, your return is is the appreciation and debt pay down. Um, so you know, year over year with these assumptions, it's it's right about thirty thousand dollars, which is more than what I invested at the front. Um, so uh, so that's you know, the way I look at this investment is that you know, uh, make sure it's operating, uh, make sure your cash flow isn't too negative. But you know, uh, and and also appreciation. You know, we're in a great market, and I definitely, um, you know, I believe strongly that it's going to continue this way. But. Uh, you know, people say like that's a cherry on top. Even the debt paydown is still a huge is a huge contributor, and that's really decoupled from appreciation. That's like not even uh, an assumption you have to make. It's just going to happen every year. Yeah, and I mean after year one, that's it's your tenants. Yeah, which makes it a lot sweeter. Right. So I treat it like a black box. As long as mm -hmm. you know, you just have to make sure the cash flow numbers are you know tolerable to you, and then you know this is the uh, um, this is the uh, uh, the real reason we're investing in real estate. So now, you know, with this one property in context of like your bigger goals, kind of talk about what's the, what's the long-term goals that, that you're working towards for real estate? So, uh, so, you know, for the sake of writing down a goal, I have uh, 15 uh, doors uh, at about $1,000 a month would be about $15,000 of net operating income. And that's assuming, you know, obviously all the debt is paid off. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm treating this property as kind of a launching pad towards, towards that. Um, you know, building my, you know, investment capital, be able to, you know, 1031 exchange into yep. a, a, uh, another property. Um, but yeah, ultimately, ultimately, I just want, you know, enough, uh, enough passive cash flow so that, you know, I don't really have to, you know, uh, worry uh, too much. Um, I know a lot of a lot of people who are getting into, uh, you know, the um, uh, the fire movement, they want to retire early. Um, I actually, you know, love what I do as my career. Um, so I don't I'm not really seeking that, you know, retire early um, goal. Uh, but it definitely would be great if, you know, I didn't have to rely on, you know, a salaried income or anything and I could just, you know, um, do as I please. So that, that's that's the long term goal is to just get, you know, enough passive income where, you know, I could just continue with my career and and uh, and not have to worry too much. And so talking about the chess game. So you're going to you're going to 
how you know nomad and house hack here for the next couple of years how how long do you think you can do that before you're you know you get tired of it yeah the goal is uh is uh five first five doors would uh would be uh via house hack um and uh and then from there just do traditional traditional investments okay um because uh so far it doesn't seem to be that bad but i know it's going to be exhausting moving moving every year and uh and you know going through the whole rigmarole of you know um you know finding some an investment property where we also want to live which was another um you know uh contributing factor to what we ended up deciding on doing because we we were living in old town arvada originally and we really love the area so we wanted to stay there because it's, it's you and your fiance right yeah yeah uh, my fiance my uh, and uh and my dog okay <laughs> Which, uh, you know, uh, Isabel the dog has a very big say in where we live, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah. They uh, they definitely can uh, <laughs> have that. I've, I've had dogs my whole life know that goes. Um, all right. Anything else? We got a few minutes before we wrap up. I'm going to talk about the spreadsheet. Uh, there's tons of places yeah. we can go with this. Um, but uh, I, th- I think we hit the high-level points. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there there is, you know, there's benefits to be able to model, you know, as much as you as you think is necessary but um you know sometimes i feel like it may be overdated a little bit because <laughs> yeah let's talk about that because i remember this is um i think one of the things I, maybe you and i talked about or, or at least i thought about is your mom was, hey great now because i i think a lot of people go through so you go through like hey i gotta figure out all these details around these assumptions and what i personally noticed when i started you know and you know i built dozens of spreadsheets i've run hundreds of properties and i was like oh well after i did all these things like i kind of have my my core assumptions here and and I kind of go more of the, the simple method yeah. and just work out. So as you did all this, you know, very impressive modeling, were there like rules of something like, you know what, like I can just use this and I'm good enough. Like what, what did you learn from just doing extensive modeling and extensive deal analysis Um, in terms of like balancing detailed modeling versus I can just do some simplistic stuff here? Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the the reason I think I, I went down the route of you know complex modeling is a that's just kind of my nature it's kind of what I do so um, I like I enjoy modeling things and you know getting you know finding out all of the edge cases and where um, where things could uh, could be optimized or or where they can go wrong um, but uh, it I think it's also a f- results from the fact that this is my first uh, investment deal so I don't really have those quick you know quick easy assumptions back of the napkin uh, because I've never done it before so it's it's kind of like you, that's something that comes with experience I mean yeah. obviously my next deal will be like all right well now I know this market I know you know what assumptions I can make and you know where, where's too much uh you know analysis um but I definitely think it helped with uh planning the um uh, capital expenditures for a lot of the um the non-new builds that I was analyzing because I feel like that is a uh um, something that's very hand wavy, and I, I guess it does work. Um, but you know, usually you just say five percent, eight percent for reserves, and then. Yep. Um, but obviously, if you go to the property, you're like, all right, well, I need to replace the roof in five years. I need to replace the water heater in three, and yep. you know, you can plot out all these expenditures, which which I've done in this spreadsheet, and uh, you can see that some things that may look good on paper actually don't necessarily. Um, so if you go to the uh, capex tab, there, yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of vestigial in this scenario because you know all of the capital expenditures are um, are beyond my investment horizon. Yeah. But essentially, what I've done here is I've enumerated all of the items, um, what they cost in twenty twenty dollars um, if they were to be replaced today, and then I've then then that gets you know inflated over time. Um, I estimate how much lifespan is remaining and how much once it's replaced, how long it will last. And given those numbers, uh, it'll be able to plot out all the expenditures over time. With inflation so that you know if you buy a property that you know needs a roof replaced in you know three years um you can say oh oh look i'm going to have a huge expense in in year three maybe that's a good time to reevaluate my investment and you know either refinance or sell mm-hmm. or do something um because that's also going to be a huge uh, uh a huge um factor in in your in your investment yep you're exactly right so I think that this is the most valuable part of of my my uh, my exercise here in, in building this model. And you're absolutely right, because I mean, you know, we often just say 8% is like, hey, throw in there while you're modeling. And once you go walk the property, that's where you get more, you know, more, hey, we have to replace this. So this water heater, we've got a couple years left. And like, that's where you can start calculating more of that stuff. But it's, yeah, it's a fine balance of um, how to calculate it and also like, who the hell knows? And also, maybe <laughs> yeah. a hailstorm comes through, not right, to replace right, the roof right, out of right. pocket. You pay your insurance deductible, yeah. uh, which is always, you know, that's everyone's uh, hope out here. Yeah, but it's also it's also kind of wasteful if you're just you know throwing a um, 
throwing a dart at a dartboard um, for what you're uh, holding for reserves or what your what your monthly reserve contribution is. Because, you know, if you're not using that money, it's just sitting in a bank and it's, you know, for an event. But if you know that I'm not going to have to replace anything and I have sufficient PMI, um, uh, uh, PITI reserves, then why am I going to, you know, continue to contribute to this account where yep. I can use that in a different investment? Mm-hmm. Yep. Smart. So. Uh, Anthony, this has been great sitting down to <laughs> the analysis with you. Uh, I love learning more about this. Um, but guys, as we wrap this up, I mean, Lauren, any, any closing thoughts on on the deal or, or you know, experiences that you can extrapolate and kind of give to listeners and future clients out there to, hey, this happened or this happened? Because there's always, there's always the curveballs mm-hmm. in deals. What are some good takeaways that investors out there can can learn from this deal and keep in mind for their first or next deal? I would definitely say there's a little bit of uh, luck in this one. Um, I yeah. think the timing of the market, the inventory, really allowed you to be able to source this, this property. Um, another kind of final note is you know, depending upon like where your income goes, maybe your fiance, but you're able to use this grant program multiple times, you know, as long as it's your primary house. And, uh, you know, so maybe you'll be able to use this creative financing for property number two. Um, and you always got your wife too, or your future wife. Soon to be wife. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, it's, uh, uh, we're, 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 we just got settled in. We have our first tenants for Airbnb, and and everything seems to be rolling. So uh, I'm I'm ready to do it again as soon as uh as soon as the uh um winter comes around. <laughs> great, Anthony. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate yeah. you coming down. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Oh, one last we know one last thing. Um, I know so this question will be asked. I'm asking now before people email me. First, I'm going to know how to contact you, mm-hmm. and people ask, can I have a copy of the spreadsheet? So how can people contact you? And then tell people, you know, yes or no on the spreadsheet or what your feeling is on that. Uh, yeah, so I, I um, uh, they can reach me on my, my email, which will be posted in the podcast notes. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, this is just, this is a living document. I keep iterating. So I'll be, I'll be happy to, to share, a, uh, you know, a, a, a copy, um, you know, in a, in a Google Drive that people can, can, uh, can take a look at and, and play around with for their own analysis. Awesome. That's great. Well, thanks a lot, everyone. All right. Thanks, Chris. Th- thank you guys. It was awesome. Thanks, Lauren.